everyone. Welcome to the OFD Bookcast. I am your host, Joshua Vols, site manager, emperor, supreme warlord, and defender of the faith over at OneFootDown.com on the SB Nation Network. And yes, again, this is the Bookcast. We are on part three of Notre Dame's Greatest Coaches, written by Stephen Singular and Notre Dame's very own Mr. Notre Dame, Moose Krause. And we are moving, I think we are on chapter six here, moving forward, slowly but surely. But uh, in this age of the coronavirus and quarantines, I don't think anyone's going anywhere uh, anytime soon. Uh, I do uh, do got a couple of things I wanted to mention before we move on, and that is uh, 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 this is Friday, and hopefully uh, y- y'all listening to this, you'll you'll be able to get to to the site. Uh, we're going to do a game watch tonight, uh, eight o'clock, and that is uh, still very much under wraps. Uh, we're keeping still keeping that a secret as to what game that is, uh, but I think uh, uh, you guys are going to enjoy it. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's a, <laughs> it's a game that wasn't mentioned by a lot of people. This whole Everyone's doing game watches right now, right? And I, I guess I have no real desire to do a game watch about the 93 Florida State game or the West Virginia 80, you know, the 88 National Championship game or the Snowball. And number one, I've seen all these games a thousand times. And... It's just it, that doesn't interest me as much right now. I mean, I, if you've seen something a thousand times, so we've been kind of last week we did our 2009 Michigan State game, um, and we had a lot of fun with that. Most people just remember that game for the Golden Tate dive, but there was wow, was there so much more that went on uh, in that game and, and really uh, affected the entire 2009 season. It was it's kind of a um, Amazing thing what happened with both Clawson and Floyd getting hurt. Anyways, so but uh, we had fun with that. Uh, we're doing that again Friday night, um, eight o'clock, and you can find out who that is and um, and where to go and all that good stuff uh, over on the site. Uh, also, um, right now we are running the Notre Dame football alternate uniform tournament. Uh, nothing original there. <clears throat> we have. Everyone has talked about uh, all of our alternates for a while, but we are just kind of making this the final say uh, in in all these uniforms uh, <laughs> that Notre Dame has worn. And so right now, uh, uh, each round gets about a 24-hour vote. So depending upon when you hear this podcast, which round you'll be in, um, I think if it's Friday, you have up until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon uh, to get over and to uh, vote on the first round. And we will go into the second round shortly thereafter. Uh, so now that I got got all those kind of announcements out of the way, we can buckle down and, and get into uh, get into this book. So <clears throat> the next chapter goes r- right on in uh, to Frank Leahy, and Frank is a look. They they say that you kind of have to be a little bit crazy to be a genius, and I think Frank Leahy probably represents that as well as any football coach has ever that's lived. Um, I think there's probably the great coaches that you talk that from nowadays, uh, you know, Nick Saban, probably a little bit nuts. And when I say nuts, I don't mean like you think the walls are talking to you. <clears throat> Although Frank tied in 
religion very, <laughs> very much so uh, with what he did, uh, being a, a very ardent Catholic. Um, but, uh, you know, just your obsession with winning, your, your, your absolute obsession with getting things right, uh, those are trademarks of great coaches um, that, I, to me, would feel easy if you're a coach to, like, to turn into that. Uh, but the great ones take it and they just run with it. Uh, and Frank certainly did that. So look, when you're born, uh, or it's not born, but when you grow up in a town called a winner in a, in South Dakota, uh, a little bit of foreshadowing for you. And Leahy certainly did do a lot, uh, of winning. Uh, he was kind of a, I mean, and he's a fighter. He, he's the kind of guy who, he finished more fights than he started. Um, and the book goes into just a, a smidge bit of, of his youth with that, just meaning that the guy was a rough, uh, kind of a rough and tough guy uh, that that could take take some punishment and give it out. Um, let me read this. <clears throat> read this from you. In 1930, after Leahy hurt his knee, he was sent to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. At that time, Rockney was also suffering from a leg out element and was being treated in the clinic for two weeks the men lay in side-by-side beds and talked constantly one subject dominating their discussions football Leahy wanted to know everything Rockney had learned about the game and questioned him relentlessly he wanted to know the technical aspects of the sport and how to motivate young men imagine that imagine (laughs) imagine like Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban I guess, you know, laying in in a hospital together, just shooting the shit, talking about football uh, all day, every day. Uh, that's kind of on those same lines there. Um, so you, what had happened was, you know, Leahy, Leahy hurt his knee terribly and he just he couldn't play football again. So what basically turned in Leahy's mind is if he couldn't play football, he was going to coach football. Uh, and so him talking to Rock and getting everything he could out of him, um, you know, w- w- was important. So Leahy went then, you know, went on to coach, and, and he did it at Georgetown, Michigan State, Fordham, um, where he was there with Vince Lombardi, and then finally Boston College uh, before Notre Dame gave him the call and he came back home uh, to South Bend to coach the Irish. Leahy's first team was undefeated, but you know, no national championship. There, which there's a lot of Leahy, like, there's a lot of probably should have won the national ti- title that year. Uh, look, they're undefeated and they didn't get it. Um, that's just kind of a staple. Uh, but getting into it, it gets into what Leahy ultimately started to do at Notre Dame and. And despite him being a, you know, playing for Rock and, and you know, laying in the hospital with him for all that time and getting all the knowledge he could out of him, Leahy eventually did what great coaches do, and that's change something. You know, great coaches don't follow a blueprint set by the exact blueprint by a coach previous, a great coach previous to them. They are innovators. Rock was an Tremendous innovator. Leahy 
you know, went to go put his stamp on his innovation. And really, it was just a, a change. It wasn't even anything that that Leahy came up with himself. It was that he made a change. And and it, it was a, a huge, it was, it was a huge change. Well, <clears throat> let, me, let me read what the book says about it. For the 1942 season, he got rid of the famous Rockney shift offense and replaced it with a T formation recently popularized by Stanford at the collegiate level and the Chicago Bears and the pros. Trying to improve on Rock's tactics with the campus joke of the day was heresy. Akin to a professor going to Notre Dame administration and asking for permission to divorce. In their opening game, the Irish were tied by Wisconsin, led by Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch, and then lost their home opener to Georgia Tech. Criticism of Leahy was loud and unremitting. He was ridiculed in the papers. Who did he think he was? If something had been good enough for Rockney, why wasn't it good enough for this upstart? How soon would he return to the old offense? Notre Dame beat Stanford the following week. But by then, Leahy was back in the Mayo Clinic, diagnosed with extreme nervous tension. After his return to South Bend, things gradually improved, and the Irish finished the year with seven wins, two, two losses. Can't throw this page. <laughs> and two ties. He did not scuttle the T formation, and the next year Notre Dame used it to win the national championship. So think about that. Just, now, this gets. Just think about that for a moment. Think of just modern day what happens. I mean, Notre Dame's Brian Kelly right now. Or anytime a new coach comes in and doesn't do what the alumni and the media think that that school needs to do to win football games and win a championship. And if there isn't like immediate and like dominating success right off the bat, it is immediately uh, subject to, to ridicule. And that's exactly what happened with Leahy. Uh, that was a huge thing. The, the Notre Dame shift offense, that was Rockney. That was, you know, that was your, <laughs> your football god. Uh, you know, his, the Ten Commandments of the football god at Notre Dame, basically. And it got changed up. <clears throat> and... I mean, that's, that's, number one, it takes balls. Uh, but it also, again, takes that crazy lunatic determination that Leahy had to do that and to make it work. I mean, obviously, winning a national championship takes care of some of that. <clears throat> so then, <laughs> you know, it, much of this chapter... It, it kind of goes back and forth within the Leahy era. Um, and it, it, it's called um, The Man. We'll get, it, and it's what the guy, it's what Leahy's, Leahy's lads called him, The Man. It was, you know, it was an affectionate name, but also one of respect and, and almost of fear because that's exactly what Leahy instilled in almost all the players that, that went through Notre Dame with him. Fear and respect. And that's, you know, for football coaches, that's kind of the kind of the flavor that a lot of them. And nowadays, it, you know, it maybe not so much. Now there, it has a lot to do with love uh, and 
and all that, and that's fine. But there still is a healthy amount of fear, you know, not that you're going to be pushed down a stairwell or anything like that, but just what that coach is going to put up with and how your future is in their hands. Uh, but then the respect is, has to be there with the fear. It absolutely has to be hand in hand. And that means that the players understand that you pushing them and and putting all this hurt on them, so to speak, is for their own good and to make them better. Uh, and Leahy gave a lot of belief to his players. As, as hard as he was, he instilled a belief uh, into his players that of greatness. And that's hard. That, it's easy to say, and it's a, a lot harder to do. Um, you know, j- just as parents, it, you know, as a father, it, it's something I, I struggle with as a father. You know, there's that ultimate balance. Yet my kids will always feel loved. I, I need, seriously, I need them to fear me. In this day and age, I need my kids to have some fear of me, of the repercussions that come from them doing something extremely stupid. Uh, and you know that doesn't mean that you know that I'm picking up a belt or anything stupid like that. That just means that that look, that tone, that that pullback, uh, you know, is there. Ultimately, them knowing that I want what's best for them—that's th- a—that's a hard thing to juggle. So, parents, parents, and coaches have to deal with that all the time. Leahy seemed to have really mastered that. Uh, so, th- <laughs> so let's get into, you know, Moose. So Moose ends up coaching with um, with Leahy, and he started he started with Leahy in '42. Uh, and Leahy often had Moose in pads. Um, Throughout the practices, this is an era where, where coaches, uh, a lot of the times, were bigger than their players, and would get down and dirty in practice the whole time. Um, he he refused to allow his coaches. He never allowed his coaches to wear pads, uh, and the idea was to show his team how soft they were and how tough the old guys used to be. It's a it's a really a psychological in many senses, but at the same time too, it's. It's Moose Krause. This is this big, big, not not name, uh, although it still it carried weight, but just this big guy who's going to knock you on your ass. Um, just a, a quick flashback. I, I think it was my junior year uh, in high school. Our, our team was just riddled with injuries, and one of our coaches was a uh, uh, was a Hicksville alum and and was a uh, quarterback for. For Hicksville years before, uh, went to Ohio State. I think he had a pro contract uh, for baseball, uh, but never, never ended up playing or anything like that. But he was a big guy, even for a quarterback. So when we lost some bodies, uh, just a ton of injuries that year, uh, coach ended up putting pads on. We, we had a, his, our nickname for him was, I don't think he liked it very much, but was Dauber, uh, much like the, the character from the show Coach. But Dauber was bigger than just about everybody on the team. He was a big guy. Uh, and not like big fat. Like he was just a big guy, worked out. He was a pro, he was a big pro style quarterback kind of a guy. He's a big dude uh, on a small school team like Hicksville. Uh, and so he did the scout team quarterback. Uh, he, he played defensive line on scout team defense. Uh, and, you know, it was, 
I don't I don't know how good of a coach he really was, but it gets a lot of respect for for jumping on in and and, and you know doing the dirty work. And that's goes back to this era here where most of those coaches were doing that. So I mean, and Moose was was second in command. He, you know, you had Leahy, and then it, then it was Moose. Um, and it just you know, besides them not having to wear wear uh, wear pads, you know, he didn't let them. He didn't let the coaches wear like earmuffs or gloves on the sidelines. These guys went out there like Spartan style, basically with the team. Uh, the the chant was "Run hail snow or sleet." Leahy's men will always meet. Uh, he he tried to instill a absolute toughness into his players, but also his coaches. Like he demanded it from his coaches, demanded it from his players, and so there was no one looking around to to say, "Man, I wish I had that coat on." You know what I mean? It was he he really went out there and lived it. He was the Leahy was the ultimate, uh, you know, warriors general uh, out there with his men, uh, and Leahy along with with his coaches like Moose. Um, you know, and it it was just a, it was an obsessive it was an obsessive thing with with Leahy. He wanted to win. The man lived in Michigan City, which I I, I still don't understand. The man lived in Michigan City uh, and drove into South Bend. Uh, to work, but during the season he wouldn't go home until Sunday. He'd be there all week. Uh, then he'd go home Sunday. Um, but he, there's a uh, there's a there's a a little room in the firehouse there on campus. Uh, and it's pretty famous. Most people know about it. But that's where Leahy slept a lot of times, uh, <laughs> if and when he did sleep. Um, he, he, some people said he just slept at his desk, slept in his clothes. I mean, the man just just absolutely was obsessed with winning and was very much had a had a game plan of of toughness and of uh being prepared and just man it, the fear factor i i the stories are great i mean the the best thing about late about the Leahy era is really the players and their stories after there's other books that that go into a lot more detail about uh, about Frank and and and, and how, what how he was. And we'll get into maybe a little bit of that here um, today. But uh, there's there's some books that really go into detail. Uh, and the you know his Irish brogue was something that like pretty much everybody can mimic, and <laughs> which is uh, funny. And I mean when they talk, when they say, when they go to like quote Frank. They will all go into an Irish broke uh, and, and bust that out. Um, you know, but that obsessiveness really, you know, it drove drove Frank into a, a set of into a bit of madness. I mean, he ended up having to to retire from the game sooner than most coaches do today. You know, because of all that. Um, you know, he had the. I mean, but I mean, you, you can't you can't deny what he did. I mean, he has a, he's a winning percentage of eight fifty five. Yeah, rocks rock is absolutely the king at eight eighty one. But think about eight fifty five for a minute. That's amazing. Uh, he's got you know all those national championships here at one foot down. We recognize a lot more. So uh, there's a picture of a plaque in at Notre Dame that has a list of 
all 21 championships. Uh, and there are the ones that the people, you know, the ones from the undefeated years from Leahy definitely are there. Uh, man had an, just an amazing, amazing career in Notre Dame uh, winning championships. Um, let's see here. Oh, you know, it, let's get into the toughness here. So uh, Jack Berry, who was the son of um, uh, Norm Berry, who was Moose Krause's coach uh, uh, in high school in Chicago, uh, ended up playing at Notre Dame as well. And he, he, had, some, he had something to say about, you know, how, how practice went. <clears throat> so I said, Frank showed up in February, Jack says. It had been snowing a lot, but he cleaned off the field and said, Gentlemen, get your hats on and let's scrimmage. It was murderous, and he had 120 players and said he could use only use 56 of us. No one wanted to get cut or lose a scholarship, so it turned into a bloodbath. I survived, and I wasn't very big. It was one fight after another on the field. There were brawls everywhere, and I got into a few of them myself. When those practices started... Wally Ziemba was a fat, slow, 265-pound tackle. When they ended, he was a 225-pound center who could move. Think about that. Football practice basically as a is battle, pure battle. Frank, one of the toughest guys imaginable. Um, and here's another passage. We're just going to read some of these off. We played Carnegie Tech in 41. They lost four or five games and they were an inferior opponent, but our game with them was close and our fullback failed to score once after being inside their five-yard line. On the train ride home, as we got close to South Bend, it was two on a Sunday afternoon. The senior manager came through the car and said, Gentlemen, everyone on the field at 3 o'clock today. We got off the train, suited up, and ran the fullback play we hadn't scored on for two straight hours. It was brutal. Leahy went through three or four fullbacks and then told us, lads, we'll never fail to score on that play again. After I left school, Frank asked me to coach his B team, and I didn't respond right away. I was getting married at the time. Finally, he came to me and wanted an answer. This is Moose talking. I said, I'd do it. He said, practice starts this Monday. I said, I'm getting married this weekend. He said, oh, I forgot about that. Practice starts this Tuesday at 8. And that was my honeymoon. Obsessive. Absolutely obsessive. Brutal in tactics, but they got results. And for the, for the time period in the day, that was all that was important. Um, God, there's, there's, there's so many of them. It's like, it's like that's, uh, I think this one's a funny one. So we'll, we'll, let's look at this. Joe Signiaro is best remembered for a game against Northwestern in 1941. He says, I went down with a broken nose and was bleeding profusely. Blood everywhere. I thought I was going to die. At Notre Dame, only the captain could call timeout, and I wasn't the captain. But I called one anyway. I knew it was a mistake. Leahy called me over, and I didn't want to get close to him because I was bleeding like a hog. Whoops. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't want to get Eddie on his clothes. He looked at me and said, what's the problem, lad? I said, I think my nose is broken. He said, look over there at Moose Krause. He broke his nose three or times in a game, and he never called timeout. Now get back in there and do some blocking. After the game, I saw a doctor, and he set my nose and told me not to do anything for at least a week. 
The trainer came by and told me the lay he wanted to see me. I went in and said I couldn't practice. Why not, lad? What's the matter? My nose is broken, I told him. Well, in that case, there's nothing more that could happen to it. Get dressed and get out to practice. My Irish brogue probably isn't the greatest, but... <laughs> that's, this is the era. I, I, I cannot stress that enough. This is the era uh, of, of all this. And it just, it just goes into one story after another. Um, uh, you know, from 1946 to 1949, Notre Dame never lost a game. Uh, they won a championship in 43, and then in 46, 47, and 49, um, you know, they won the title. They were undefeated in 48, but they didn't win it because the press wanted to give it to somebody else. Sounds familiar. They did the same thing to Holtz. Uh, it was just, it, it's just insane how, how well this program, did, how awesome this program was. We just, had, we haven't seen anything like it. Even Era and Lou did not match up to what Frank did. They just didn't. Yes, we were talking about completely different eras. Even, even Holtz, you know, the, era that Holtz coached in compared to the era that Parsegian coached in in was totally different. And so obviously both of those are much different than in Frank's day. But at the same time, you just have to look at the sheer dominance, the the will of winning. And it is just impressive. I mean, it is absolutely uh, impressive. Um, So, you know, (laughs) it's, Like I said, the the chapter itself just goes into more and more stories about Frank, um, the story about Angelo Bertelli winning the Heisman, uh, you know, what that meant to him, uh, more about the T formation. Um, I mean, man, it just, it's kind of all over the map. The the author might, not just some flower language, but just kind of, just kind of all over the map. Uh, but but it, but each one each one of the stories is pretty fascinating in itself. Or I guess you don't mind mind the jump. You, you don't mind the uh, non chronological way uh, in, in which the tale was told. <clears throat> so now we're so moving past uh, moving forward here a little bit. The book again jumps back into the modern day and the modern day of the time. Um, you know, with the football season with Holtz. And it, it really, like, romanticizes game day. The next chapter, it's called Before the Storm. It really, like, goes into... I mean, the guy really... The author really uh, was fascinated by game. I, I kind of wondered the way, way in which he wrote it, if, if he had ever been to a college football game before. Um, you know, Notre Dame isn't you... Unique in their, in a sense of the the game day is, is so huge and so all encompassing around campus. There's there's quite a few schools throughout the country where the, where you have these rabid fan bases that where Saturday is a religion. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm just not sure if the author had, had, if he's ever been a part of any of that uh, before. But um, but he I mean, but he also shows kind of how. Rock, or not rock, but how Moose goes through on a game day, uh, you know, and about his cigars and, and the meetup of of the old of the old lads and you know and all that. 
Um, and then, you know, obviously this was, there was, what, where was that? It was a, uh, it was a funny bet about, maybe that's in the next chapter, but, uh, but there was a funny bit about how there's some excitement on this game, uh, or because, the, or excitement on the campus because Notre Dame was chosen to be the place where they were going to shoot a major motion, motion picture called Rudy. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, no shit. Why would, why would they going to go shoot this movie, uh, down at Ohio state? I, <laughs> I didn't get what the, how the author was, was really made this like such a huge deal. Uh, <laughs> uh so anyway, but I mean, yeah, it's a big deal, but it was like, he was making it almost like it was a surprise. Like, like, Oh, this is crazy that they're shooting a movie here. Um, actually on Notre Dame. Well, yeah, there, if it's a movie about uh, Notre Dame, wouldn't it be shot on Notre Dame? If it's going to, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's hindsight. Maybe back then I would be like, that's crazy too. But, um, but then it, it gets into the 92 game with, um, with Stanford. And, you know, obviously it was not a game that uh, <laughs> it was Notre Dame lost 33-16. They were up 16-0. Stanford came back, uh, scored 33 points. It was a Bill Walsh team. Uh, this was, uh, it was embarrassing in, in the sense that this is what happened to Notre Dame on their home field. Um, but uh, so the chapter kind of, goes into really war what was happening around Moose uh, up in his spot in the press box. Um, and, you know, it, it just it speaks about who's up there. Uh, you had, you know, bishops, and uh, I mean, there's some funny stories, uh, you know, about them, people going up to the bishop and, and telling him to pray harder and them having a good time. Uh, when it was, uh, you know, I talked about the bishop dealing with some uh, some Catholic humor that has been around for 50 years about um, holy water. It, it Like I said, it, it goes into what's going on around Moose up in while he's watching this game. The mood's changing. Um you know, it was, it was, by the way, it was Bishop Crowley uh, that was up there. So, you know, it was a day, it described the day as, as being one of, there's a lot of excitement, right? Florida State and Miami were playing that day. That was a huge matchup. Obviously, everybody at Notre Dame was, was pulling for Florida State to beat Miami. Um, and Notre Dame looking to rise in the polls there, uh, figuring with a win over Stanford, um, even with that tie with with Michigan, that would start to move them in the direction of being set up to uh, to move on the rest of the season for a national championship run. Um, and like I said, ultimately Notre Dame lost that game, <laughs> and it was uh, it, it just kind of just showed the the despair that we've all come to love and know uh, about Notre Dame football and a loss and. You know, this isn't like Notre Dame losing. I, you know, it, it, it's hard for I think you know I'm 41 years old. I think it's hard for some younger fans to appreciate losses 
back then how they used to be, how they were. Like now, yeah, it's still, <clears throat> it's still huge. It's still a big deal. People flip out like always. But I think there's there's a tendency to like want to move on. Like it's okay, we can move on to the next game. Back then, it, 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 they're really stuck on you. I mean, there was no college football playoff. It was just straight polls. It's, you know, I, again, and I'm not going to get into a whole playoff rant, but the season seemed like it meant, still meant a lot more. Um, and losses were dealt with harshly. And this was one of them. And this was at a place like Notre Dame, where you're not winning a conference, you know, you're not playing for a conference championship. You're not even playing for for New Year's Day bowls. You're playing for national championships, and that's it. The loss was devastating, but they still had a season to play. Still had a half a season to play. You had to pick yourself up. So it, it, <clears throat> the, the chapter and our, our story here today ca- kind of ends with with Moose. I mean, it was sad. You know, he, he didn't go out to the parties afterwards. I mean, obviously, he, he took the he took the losses badly as well. But it, it also goes into like this isn't a this isn't a like a, a once in a lifetime occurrence. Like just because Notre Dame has been great at football for for many years didn't mean that they didn't have heartbreaking losses. And this happened. It happens to everybody. Moose has been around the block. He's been around. He's seen it all. And so, as bad as it hurt him, it. The, I thought it was kind of not, kind of cool the, the way the book put it, but he just kind of went into that mode of, all right, he's going to write, you know, he's going to write Holtz a, a note, uh, kind of a pick-me-up, kind of a theme of advice, um, it, it, which is, you know, I guess it's, it's something that you would, it's just the normal, say, you know, speak. But it, I guess when you're in that situation, it's good to know that the, it isn't the end of the world. It isn't. Oh my God! People have been in this place before, and oh by the way, uh, this legend here has been in it a, in a few times and had some words of wisdom to move past it. So, and that's where we're going to be at today. I I really thought I could get into more of of uh, Frank's um, more Frank stories, uh, but <laughs> I think we would have been here a lot longer than what this podcast was supposed to be. Um, but again, it, it shows the, you know, the obsessiveness with Frank for winning, um, you know, the, the different kind of character he was, uh, in this chapter. And, and again, I didn't get into enough of it to show, um, the different layers of Frank, but <clears throat> it all, then again, it goes into, it, it ties Moose into all this. Moose was second in command with Frank. He was there for this loss against Stanford. Um, and, it all gets tied in together. It shows the pomp and circumstance at Notre Dame on game day, um, and the this devastation of a loss afterwards. It, it does a good job. It, that, like I said, the author kind of goes. Maybe maybe this if this is a, if no one was, no one had been to a college football game before, maybe that wouldn't be. Um, it wouldn't strike you so differently, but it, it struck me as like, has this guy never been anywhere else before this game? Uh, you know, maybe he went to a small school. I, I don't know much about, I didn't look up where the, what this guy did. Uh, but, you know, it, it was it was a nice set of three chapters. Um, you know, here's this, 
here's greatness personified and Frank and what he did and what he meant and, and all this stuff. And then going into back into the 92 season and what, uh, what a big day that Stanford game really was and what, how that changed the course of the entire season in one day. You, you thought the Michigan tie changed the course of the season. Well, here you go. Um, and so with Holtz being considered one of the great coaches of Notre Dame history, here's him having to deal with uh, a whole lot of adversity. I mean, man, down, you're up 16 nothing and you lose 33-16. That's just a – I remember that game. I remember that game very well. I remember being at my grandparents' house and watching that game. Uh, I remember even the feeling of being up 16 nothing. Like, they got this. The, the book does a great job of – the press box, like, and not really the press, but the, you know, back then it was one press box. It wasn't the separation. It wasn't the luxury suites. You know, it was a, and it, I think it was even smaller than the one that they have. Yeah, it was. It was a much smaller than the one they had before. Um, and you know, there was people up on the roof, but it was. It just shows that these, what's going on, you know. It, up with, the, with the, all these big wigs, uh, legends and names, and the emotional uh, roller coaster that they went through on that day. So, all right. So we will be back the next time with <laughs> moving forward, and and we'll get into more of uh, you know Moose uh, in his kind of through his time, uh, uh, more time with Frank. Um, so we'll, we'll get some more Frank stories in there for sure. Don't you worry about that. Uh, maybe I'll brush up on my Irish brogue accent, which is got to admit it's not so good. Um, but, um, but yeah, as we, uh, do our quarantine action here, I hope this was, uh, I hope you're reading this and following along. I know we're kind of going at a snail's pace here, but trying to find the time to do these. Um, if, if you got any comments or suggestions for all this, please shoot me an email, subwaydomer26 at gmail.com, or leave a comment on the site where I post this at. Or you could also leave, please leave a rating and review um, over on Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate that. Any review left on Apple Podcasts does get read over on the OFD Podcast. And, um, and we're doing those about once a week, still doing those once a week uh, through all this quarantine action. So... Thank you for your time. Uh, Again, I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, go Irish.